0: In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey
1: everybody thanks again for listening and thanks again to our sponsor who makes it possible anderson hauser a global leader in process automation and measurement instrumentation anderson hauser the people for process automation i feel like we have an exciting podcast today if you're interested in hse in the oil and gas industry and if you're especially interested in how technology can contribute to that you're going to want to listen to this interview today i have two guests I have the CEO and founder of a company called Data Gumbo, Andrew Bruce. Thanks, Andrew, for coming on.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for your time.
1: Well, you know, we don't have cheap guests on here. We got the CEO and founder here. Then also along with Andrew, joining Andrew is its chief product officer, William Fox. Chief product officer. That's an interesting way to
0: refer to a computer geek, right? Yeah, I'm just technical enough to be dangerous. So the the developers think I don't know what I'm talking about, and the customers think I sound dangerously scientific. So good middle area.
1: Well, I'm going to come back to that here in just a second. The reason that I wanted to have you guys on the program today, I came across some sort of press release, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and it said that today the Offshore Operators Committee which is called the OOC, the OOC Oil and Gas Blockchain Consortium announced the results of its first pilot, and the consortium utilized Houston-based Data Gumbo's transactional blockchain network to automate field readings and thus invoice payments to vendors in water haulage in the Bakken field, and the pilot, it says, experienced stellar results. Looks like you guys using your blockchain, your Gumbo Net blockchain network, you provided a platform for automating produced water haulage from field reading to invoice payment. It was executed on five Equinor wells in the Bakken Field in North Dakota. And it was the first industry-wide use of blockchain native network for produced water haulage, which that that sounds, like I said, that's why I wanted to have you guys on because that just was really impressive to me. But let's start out with, and first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about what blockchain is. I saw a a little cartoon the other day. And so there's this uh, really smart looking lady and she's sitting at the desk on her laptop And there's another guy sitting next to her who kind of, you know, looks technologically challenged like me. And uh, she says to this guy, she says, this would be a perfect application for blockchain. And so this guy, like I said, who's like me, he says, look, I'm in marketing. Can you explain that in terms I can understand? And then she replies, I kind of doubt it. And then he says, because you're a bad explainer, right? (laughs) So. Guys, see if you can be a good explainer to me and let's talk about blockchain and then let's get into this pilot program here and let's talk about how it relates to environmental and safety in the oil and gas industry. So which one of you wants to tackle that explanation first? Well, this is
2: Andrew. I'll, I'll go first and William can add in the, the blanks where I screw up. The first thing to, to note is that blockchain is not a cryptocurrency. So if anybody associates the two forget that. So if you think of blockchain and you think of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or mining or tokens, forget about it. That's not what we're talking
1: about. We're talking about a blockchain. Okay. Well, I'm glad you said that because actually if you Google blockchain, you're going to find more hits on Bitcoin than you do blockchain.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So cryptocurrencies require blockchain, but blockchain does not require a a cryptocurrency. So we use the underlying technology, that enables cryptocurrencies, but we do not use any cryptocurrencies. There's no, you'll probably like this. There's no requirement for gumbo box. So the idea of companies <laughs> having to pay each other in gumbo box is not something that we, <laughs> we propose.
1: Okay. But the problem is you just, hang on just a second. You just, so what's a gumbo box?
2: Nothing. It's, it's a made up term. So you've got all these silly names for all these different cryptocurrencies. Oh, okay. Okay. And, okay. So I, was just, I was making a silly joke.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: Sorry. I guess the silly joke fell
1: flat. Well, that's because I'm technologically challenged. But obviously, from your accent, you also don't do Cajun gumbo either, right? No, I come from uh, slightly northeast of uh, Louisiana. Yeah.
2: <laughs> now, the, so the story behind the name is we started out as a data platform for aggregating data. William and I worked on autonomous drilling systems at National Web Arco. So data gumbo was our attempt at humor for aggregating data from multiple different data sources, uh, staring it up, putting it apart, staring it up, making it taste good and getting data gumbo. So we started out as a data platform for aggregating data across multiple different installations and we ended up doing blockchain to solve a specific problem of mistrust between different counterparties. So blockchain essentially is distributed database where everybody has got an exact same copy of the data at all times and nobody none of the counterparties can change the data on their own without everybody else knowing about it so what we do is we take we collect the terms of a commercial agreement so if i deliver x to you you pay me y i use the iot platform the internet of things platform the data platform to measure what's happening in the field. So I measure a real sensor in the field to to trigger that the delivery has been made and then you pay me automatically assuming that the data is within parameters set by the counterparties. So we measure the data, we execute the contract, and we use that to automate a payment between counterparties. And each counterparty has got an exact same copy of that data, which can then be used for audit, it can be used for Real-time reconciliation, it can be used for allocations. So at all times, everybody's got an exact same copy that can't be changed. And that essentially, that's what it is. It's it's taking a single source of data, using that to execute pre-agreed terms of a contract, and then using that to make a payment. In a very quick nutshell, that's what
1: it is. Okay. And then from a practical standpoint, when you're talking about some of this data, like you, uh, you track fuel delivery to pay for it, And things like that, right? That's correct,
2: yes. So I mean what's given some scenarios we're working on right now. For example, an oil company pays the bill for diesel and they pay it based on whatever the trucking company says. What we do is we come in and we measure all the delivery points and we reconcile it against the the contract and make sure that the diesel company gets paid on time or if not early, and that's the the oil company only pays for diesel that is actually delivered, and they've got real-time visibility into what that spend is.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting because there's a guy formerly, I think at Shell, Mark Anderson, and he said, you know, this is finally the, the thing that puts a business case together for better sensors and better automation out in the field. And so as an example in that diesel delivery scenario, one of the things that happens is the trucks pick up the diesel at the rack at a different temperature than it's delivered. You know, it's picked up the night before or in the middle of the day. And depending on the temperature at the pickup point, at the end point, you can have an expansion or shrinkage of something like 3 to 5%. So one of the things that you have to do then is have temperature-adjusted gauges. And here in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, gradually those have become required. And so you have a system that's still very paper-based in its thinking, which is I have a chit, I'm going to get it signed by a guy in the field, we're going to aggregate them, we're going to send them back. But in reality, the sensors and the data have are 25 years ahead of that process, and we can now do something where it's mutually agreed, win-win. Both sides see the same temperature-adjusted delivery data, and if it's within, let's say, half a percent of what is in the truck ticket, then that is approved for payment and goes straight through the invoicing process, cutting maybe 30 steps out. And what's really interesting is if you do something like that, what other good behaviors does that drive and what other information can you use that for? And some of those things come into that, the ZHSE environment, because you're incentivizing, you know, only delivering enough fuel at the right times, you're incentivizing uh, a-, a produced water standpoint, you're incentivizing not dumping the water off somewhere on a highway in New Mexico, because you're only going to get paid if it shows up at the saltwater disposal well, as an example. So there's these sort of knock on effects that back into environmental improvements.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm appalled at that example you just used. That has never happened. <laughs> no and, comment. And, and, yeah. and that was another dumb joke. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, unfortunately, and I want to say that's probably like some of the things that are happening in in our country today. You know, you you know there are bad people out there in professions, but you hope that they're few and far between. And, you know, I'm just naive enough to believe that that's true. I know from the environmental side on the oil and gas side, I actually made my entrance into the oil and gas industry back in 1997. So I guess that tells everybody how old I am. And that was after a 20-year career in something else. So now you really know how old I am. But I, I can tell you, we actually said back then, because it was a, it turned out, with the downturn in the oil industry that they had in 1999, it kind of turned out to be a little, little failed adventure that we managed to pick back up, ironically enough, about five years ago. And what we said in 1997 was we were ahead of our time. We've picked it up now 20 years later because we're not ahead of our time. And the environmental consciousness of, of people in our industry is it's night and day. And I'm happy to report that. And, you know, I think we need to be, you know, Trumpeting that, and things like this are really a help because I think you could also use this to report emissions, couldn't
0: you yeah, absolutely, that's a great point so there's there's all sorts of reasons to collect things like flaring data or fuel burned from a commercial payment standpoint where that exact same data would then be available to do things like self report to a state agency or the ePA. We did a demo about a year ago with wood where they fed us some flare data from an actual gathering system, and we were able to do a smart contract that created a, an EPA emission self-report form, as an example.
1: Well, you know, another example, when you're talking about tracking fuel consumption and rig activity for payment purposes, you could also make that data available to compare performance between engines, right?
0: That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things we've seen, well, we did one project where they wanted to compare rig activity, fuel consumption, and so on. We did another one where they were looking at and saying, well, wait a minute, if we upgrade to these hybrid engines, can we show that a, we are getting the power and activity we need when we're drilling or when we're tripping? But on the other hand, you know, we got we can back into the, the reduction in emissions, and we can go back to our operators, especially offshore, and say, you know, you need to pay, help us pay for the investment and the upgrade to this rig as it goes on a long-term contract with you. And you'll be able to provably say you took X tens of thousands of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, even though you're still doing offshore drilling, and we'll have all the data available on this ledger, which you can make available to your state or non-governmental agencies for reporting as proof. So interesting opportunities.
1: So let's talk about data gumbo specifically, because you mentioned the need for sensors and this sort of thing. You guys are the you're the software side, not the sensor side. Is that right? Or how does that coordinate? That's
2: exactly correct. We're providing the blockchain network infrastructure, which is all software. And we use sensors, scalar systems, whatever whatever the agreed source of data is between the different counterparties for a contract, and we read that data. Sometimes that may require a company to upgrade a sensor, but typically we try and work with whatever data is there. It's, as William just so eloquently said, that this this builds the case for IoT this, and why people want to you know, put a better sensor on on a tank so that you can prove the flow very accurately as opposed to using a, a tank level sensor, which is not proving flow very accurately at all. So we're not in the meter business. We're not in the We're not in the ticketing business where we are in the blockchain business. We connect to whatever infrastructure is already there.
0: And one of the other sort of side effects of this is that it's just like there's all these other digitization efforts out there that have all kinds of benefits. Those are all still true. But because the smart contract is software based, and again, the smart contract is just a bunch of dumb scripts that are going to execute the rules that the parties agree, it means that, for instance, we have to have the field tickets if they're going to be included in electronic format. And you know, there's still a surprising number of places where you know people are acquiring triplicate forms and paper and so on. And every piece of paper that is still a requirement is somebody's going to have to get on the road, you know, in North Dakota in the winter to go pick them out of mailboxes. And so to the extent that companies finally take the step to go digital in order to participate in smart contracts, it's taking hundreds of people off of the road in these basins from going and physically getting tickets signed physically picking up tickets and and so on so we can't claim that to be a blockchain only benefit but it is a side effect of going in the smart contract route is you, you have to go to digitize tickets
2: yeah and there's another side benefit of that especially with this virus is this the touchless transactions so to the extent you're reducing human touch and you know people picking up tickets and touching pens and having to interact with each other we are changing the whole paradigm to is much more like you go to the gas station, you swipe your credit card and you pay the gas, you pay for the gas pump it and leave, so that there is no human interaction required. So you you're automating the transaction with the financial benefits, but you're also deriving benefits from you know fewer human touches.
1: You know, and that's interesting. So you guys, you can call yourself the Walmart of the oil and gas industry because just on the news this morning, Walmart just announced one of their Fayetteville, Arkansas stores. They were going to all cashier-less transactions to produce some of these same safety benefits like you just mentioned there.
2: Now, you guys are in Houston, right? We have an office in Houston and an office in Stavanger, Norway as well. The headquarters and headquarters So
1: the home office is in Houston. Headquarters is Houston. Of course, we'll put in our show notes, your website, which is www.datagumbo.com. Correct. Okay. And then also, if anybody wants to get in touch with either of you two guys, we'll also put in the show notes, your URL addresses for LinkedIn. We'll go back to this uh, pilot study in the in the Bakken. And one thing that I had a question about this OOC, this Offshore Operators Committee, this includes 10 oil and gas member companies. You've got Chevron, ConocoPhillips, Equinor, ExxonMobil, Hess, Marathon, Noble Energy, Pioneer Natural Resources, Repsol, and Shell. It was just interesting to me that this pilot study, it was done onshore instead of offshore.
2: Yeah, so they they looked at multiple different use cases and they wanted to choose something which was low enough risk that if there was some issue then it was in our case it was just water and obviously if it's onshore it's lower risk than it is offshore so they wanted something that was low enough risk that it was manageable but on the other hand that approved the technology and it proved the value of the technology so I think that those, those were the parameters that they used to choose water, but obviously, or maybe not obviously, if you can hold water, then you can use, hold crude oil or chemicals or diesel or any, any other commodity. So the system doesn't just handle water, it handles any commodity. So the same metrics that could be applied to the financial benefits of, of water get obviously magnified when you're talking about a more valuable commodity, and the, exactly the same principles apply.
0: Right. So whether it's a truck on land bringing production chemicals to a pad or it's offshore service vessel with 400 cubic meters of oil-based mud taking it out to a rig or a platform, it's very similar logic, very similar data model, and it's just slightly different inputs and endpoints.
1: And it's all about companies knowing about their operating expenses and how to reduce them and this is the kind of technology that's driving that. I read an article today from an energy reporter, and you know Russia got involved in this war with saudi arabia and the and the shale producers in the u s and According to this guy, somebody on the Russian side thought that they could still be successful with oil prices at $25, and they found out that that just just wasn't the case. And that, according to this guy, is the reason why they succumbed and started participating in the uh, production cuts again and that sort of thing. And they also thought they weren't going to be affected by the COVID-19, and as it turns out, they've been hit about as hard as anybody has. So that's that's caused a, a big problem for them. So not being able to, according to this reporter not having some of the technological advances that we have like like what we're talking about here with data gumbo and the extenuating safety effects that go with that you know less human contact and all that sort of thing they're really actually finding themselves behind the eight ball as compared to the shell producers
2: yeah it's interesting you you talk about those those various macro trends we have because you know you can imagine i mean any company in, in the oil patch, people say, "Oh my goodness, this this must be terrible for the you know got the virus and you've also got you know the the oil price shock." My take on that is a little bit probably contrarian because you know we've we've been ha- having to deal with low oil prices since 2014 and you know, but multiple layoffs, since hundreds of thousands of people laid off. But what this what this did, what the shock did, was it proved that the status quo is no longer good enough. I mean, people have have got to adapt to low-price oil and they've got to figure out ways of reducing their OPEX. And here's a technology that we have enables. There's a guy, this guy in our company who says he wants to print a million-dollar bill and give it to people because we do business, business case evaluations before we kick any project off. And the returns we see are typically multiple or tens of millions of dollars of savings or OPEX that is basically lying on the floor of a lot of these, these, these companies. And the, the reason it's lying on the floor is because there's processes put in place to take advantage of technologies from you know, 20, 30 years ago, which put, builds a bunch of crud up in the system that can be re, you know, removed so that we can streamline processes, streamline systems, streamline data, and automate transactions so that interest expenses go away, early payments can be realized, contract slippage goes away, the whole system becomes lubricated and works more efficiently. So people can view the oil shock as a, a bad thing, and it clearly is a bad thing. We don't want people losing their jobs, but on the other hand, it's forcing innovation, and we just happen to be fortunate that we've got a technology that can be used immediately to deliver very quick financial wins.
0: But there's another aspect, you know, we keep, I know it sounds like a broken record that we collect things for financial purposes, but one of the big aspects of oil and gas financing is insurance, is, you know, these are operations that are risky to a certain extent. And so the same information that we, that parties might want to collect for the execution of, let's say, their day-rate drilling contract has really high overlap with the sort of data that companies providing real-time advisory services or running a you know a physics-based model of the well to prevent you know kick detection or you know advise the guys to shut the well in or you know add weight to the mud to prevent a blowout. I mean, those are the sort of things where yes, absolutely, it's been shown in all kinds of studies that if you're running a service like that, your possibility of having a blowout or a catastrophic injury goes way down. But also, it means that you've got an opportunity to provably ensure that this rig, this crew, or this operation is at lower risk. And in this sort of lower forever price environment, the cost of well construction insurance or some of these other insurances are literally the difference between whether that, that well is going to be economic or not. And so we keep seeing these overlaps in data where data I collect for one thing for purely sort of mercantile purposes can be repurposed for other things. And by having it on a ledger that is shared between all the parties, you can get other actors like insurance companies or, you know, real-time remote drilling advisor type services to collaborate on the same data and that's coming in, you know, in potentially real time. So there's all kinds of tendrils going out, many of them that come back to improving safety.
1: I think that's an absolutely great point. And I think that's a good place for us to stop right there on this HSE podcast. I want to thank again everyone for tuning in. Please tune in again next week for another episode of and Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. and Hauser is your reliable U.S.-based partner for measurement instrumentation, services, and solutions. We are your people for process automation. Discover more about Endress and at cx.endress.com forward slash hse-podcast. And you can register for our monthly podcast giveaway. Follow us on LinkedIn at Endress and Hauser Group and on Twitter at Endress underscore US. As always, you can get all this in the show notes. Thanks once again, guys, for coming on. I think this has been a very enlightening podcast as it relates to HSE would like to ask everyone to please use your own social platforms to help us get this podcast out to as many folks as possible and leave us a review on iTunes. We had a very nice one last week and we really appreciate it. See you next time.
0: Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on, but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.